Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this morning is today's second reading, Galatians chapter 5. And we'll hear again these words. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. This is the word of our God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim tide. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. So wrote Samuel Smith in 1832, capturing, I think, the national sentiment because we Americans truly love our freedom. The Bill of Rights in the Constitution guarantees some of our most cherished liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, the right to keep and bear arms, the right to a trial uh, by a jury of our peers, and so on and so forth. Just about 10 days ago or so, we celebrated these freedoms with parades and picnics, family, and fireworks. In the portion of God's Word before us today, the Apostle Paul talks to us about freedom, but not the kind of freedom guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, rather the kind of freedom guaranteed on the pages of God's Word. Not the freedom won for us by the blood of patriots, but the freedom won for us by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in really some of the strongest terms possible, the Apostle Paul encourages us today to stand firm in our freedom. And he does that because, you see, freedom can be lost. My goal today is to talk to you about the freedom that we enjoy in Christ, to help you to understand it a little bit better, to rejoice in it a little bit more, and to live in it a little bit more fully. To do that, I'm going to have to tell you what our freedom in Christ really is, but first, I need to tell you what it isn't. And we'll begin with a little background information. The Galatian Christians were under attack. The Apostle Paul had taught them the gospel. He taught them the truth that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He taught them that God freely credits the righteousness of his one and only Son to the account of sinners. That he justifies them, declares them not guilty because of Jesus' saving work. He taught them all about the God who forgives our sins and they ate it up they accepted this truth with great joy but then came some false teachers sometimes called the Judaizers who infiltrated their ranks and began to teach that faith in Jesus Christ was not quite enough for salvation one also needed to obey the law of Moses you know things like circumcision and dietary restrictions etc etc and so because of those false teachings, the Galatians were in danger of losing their faith in Jesus and therefore losing their freedom. And so Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
Now a yoke, of course, is a wooden device used to connect two animals, uh, usually oxen, so that they can pull uh, a heavy load uh, like a plow or a threshing sledge or a cart or something like that. Now a yoke is a, a very burdensome, very heavy object. Paul says to the Galatians, don't let those Judaizers place a yoke on your necks again. Don't let them enslave you to the works of the law. Trying to save yourself by keeping God's laws does not work. It is not freedom. It is slavery. Nevertheless, my friends, the temptation for us to rely on our own goodness, our own good deeds, our own works before God, it just comes to us naturally. Proverbs 14 verse 12 states, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. To sin-ravaged human reason, this is what makes sense. Well, if I just do my best to obey God's laws, then he will let me into heaven. And you know something? Every man-made religion in the world is based on that faulty logic. They all teach that you get right with God by what you do. In fact, some religions even bear the name Christian teach this. And as I said, it's our natural tendency to fall into this. It's our default mode. In my confirmation classes, 7th and 8th grade, I often ask the kids, how can you be certain? How can you be sure that you're saved? And once in a while, I'll get an answer that kind of goes like this. Well, because Jesus died for my sins, and I try to live a Christian life. That's a very dangerous and. That's exactly what the Judaizers were teaching. We are saved by faith in Jesus and by what we do. But here's the thing, my friends. Jesus does not share his saving work with us. He did it all. It is finished. Still, ask any Christian, how can you be sure that you're going to heaven? And sometimes you'll get an answer like this. Well, because I believe that Jesus is my Savior, which sounds like a perfectly fine answer. Until you realize the first two words out of that believer's mouth. Because I. Not because Jesus, but because I. Do you see how subtle the devil is in his temptations? You see how easy it is for us to begin thinking that at least in part my salvation is dependent on me. Again, trying to save yourself is not freedom. It is the worst form of slavery. But then someone may turn it around and think something like this. Well, okay, if my works don't do anything to save me, if they don't accomplish anything at all, uh, then I, I don't need to live in a certain way. They don't count. How I live really doesn't matter. I can live any way that I want and do whatever I want to do. Let me give you a real-life example of, of this kind of thinking that Paul talks about in our text. And I use this example because it is sadly so very common. A couple living together outside of marriage. Talk to any pastor and they'll tell you they've had at least one conversation that went something like this. The pastor goes to the couple and, and as gently and as kindly as he can says to them, I need to warn you, you are living in sin. Uh, what you're doing goes against God's holy will and you need to repent. And then that couple rather cheerfully replies, it's okay, pastor. We love each other. We love each other. It's okay. And God understands. And besides, don't forget, God forgives. 
It is in addressing that kind of thinking that the Apostle Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. You see, that couple really isn't looking for forgiveness from God, even though that's what they mentioned. What they're really looking for is permission. Permission to keep living together in sin. Permission to live the way that they want. They are using Jesus' love and sacrifice as a license for their sinful behavior. And of course, we've all done exactly the same thing. We've all tried to take advantage of God's forgiving heart. We've all rationalized our sins like this. Well, if I have too much to drink tonight, it's no big deal because God is still going to love me. And if I go online and look at those pictures and videos I shouldn't look at, it'll be okay because God is the God who forgives. And substitute in there any other sin that you want, gossip, anger, petty theft, laziness, whatever it may be. If we think that our Lord Jesus came all the way from heaven, took on our flesh, lived perfectly in our place, shed his holy blood on the cross to give us freedom to break his holy will, then we've got another thing coming. Jesus came and shed his blood to free us from sin, not for sin. Living how we want, living how it comes naturally. In other words, living like pigs, my friends, this is in no way freedom. And you know something? Paul also speaks a sobering warning to those who think that that is freedom, that Jesus came to set us free so we can live however we want, to live in impenitent sin. He says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The earthly slavery of living in impenitence leads to the eternal slavery of hell. My friends, here's the good news. We are enslaved no more. We are free in Christ. Listen again to Paul's words. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He has broken our chains. He has shattered our shackles. He has thrown open the prison cell door that held us. But exactly how did he do it? You know, I've often been fascinated by the idea of getting a look at Jesus' hands. You know, you can tell a lot about someone from their hands. Growing up, my godfather, a guy by the name of Ernie Selves, uh, was a truck driver and a construction worker, concrete worker, all his life. And I remember even as a little kid, you'd reach up and shake his hand, and he had these big paws. And it was like hanging on to a piece of concrete. They were rock hard and rough. Very much a contrast to these hands. These are the hands of a bookworm, uh, type on a computer. I have the soft and supple hands of a clergyman. Imagine that you could get a look at Jesus' hands right now. You're going to see them one day, and they're going to embrace you, but imagine you could get a look at them now. No doubt they would reveal that he was raised the son of a carpenter. But what would his hands tell you about his love? Remember, those are the hands that created the entire universe. And yet, they are flesh and blood and bone, just like one of his creatures. The hands of true God become true man to be our substitute and our Savior. And they're caring hands, aren't they? Hands never used to hurt or to harm, but only to help and to heal. Hands guided by his perfect heart to fulfill God's holy law in every way at all times in thought and word and deed. 
They are hands that could have easily been used to fight back against his enemies because, I mean, those hands were filled with the power of Almighty God himself, but he didn't use his hands that way. Instead, in humility, he stretched them out onto wooden crossbeams to receive iron nails. And his hands to this day still bear those wounds, still bear the marks of his saving love that held him to that cross to pay for our sins. And look again, my friends, those hands are not folded up neatly on his chest in death, nor are they the hands of a skeleton slowly moldering away in a tomb somewhere in the dust. They remain flesh and blood and bone hands, living hands, glorified hands, the hands of the living one, hands that slam the door on the power of sin and Satan and death forever and ever. That's how Jesus won our freedom. He lived, he died, he rose for us, for our salvation, to win our forgiveness, to bring us back into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father, to give us true freedom. So, what does this freedom look like in our daily lives as we live in the freedom that Christ won for us? Listen, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because the Lord Jesus did it all for us, because of his perfect sacrifice, we are truly free. Free from the slavery of sin, free from the punishment that we deserve for our sins, free from the power of the devil, free from the fear of death forever and ever. And not only that, my friends, we are free to live a life that is all about loving, humble service, all about the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, we love and serve our neighbor in joy and peace and patience and kindness and all the other things in that long list. Not because we have to. Not because God is standing over us like this saying, you better or else. Not because we have to try to earn anything or to save our own skins. You know something? Such service would not be a joy, would not be peaceful. No, it would only be futility and fear and burden and death. No, we love and we serve and we walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it, not because we have to, but because we want to. And we want to because the Spirit has filled our hearts with faith in Jesus. And along with that faith, a deep gratitude for our Savior's love and forgiveness. As we heard earlier a couple of times, we love because He first loved us. Let me explain it this way. Uh, this past week, my water heater went out. Big puddle on the basement floor, big mess, big problem. Uh, a member of the congregation heard about it, and he volunteered to come over and help me. Gave up a lot of his Sunday afternoon and his Sunday evening, helping me install a brand new water heater. Uh, saved me a lot. He saved me from having to take cold showers. He saved me from having to call the plumber. He saved me some, from some pretty big repair bills. And so this week, I sat down and I hand-wrote a thank you card to him. And I placed into that card a gift certificate to a local restaurant. Now, I want you to know, nobody held a gun to my head to get me to do this. And I didn't do it just because it's the expected thing that, you know, kind of an obligation sort of a deal. 
I did it simply because I was really grateful for his help. I did it because I wanted to express that gratitude to him in some tangible way. I did it because I was glad to do it, just as he was glad to help me. Our motivation for serving our God and our neighbor in love is similar. We're glad to do it because our gracious God has done so much for us, everything for us. He has saved us. We live lives of love and service to our neighbors and to one another, not because we have to, but because we want to, because Christ's love compels us. And my friends, that is true freedom. So let freedom ring. That phrase, I think, is very precious to Americans. But you know something? I think the concept of freedom is even more important to us Christians. In Christ, we are truly free. Free from sin. Free for service. My dear brothers and sisters in the faith, stand firm in that freedom. Amen. <laughs>